Good morning again. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We began a series last week in the book of Philippians, which we're calling Partnership in the Gospel, and we continue that this morning. You'll find our reading on page 980 of the church Bibles in front of you, if you'd like to use one of them. And also, again, let me reiterate the offer of a free Bible on your way out if you don't have an ESV Bible and you'd like to take one home so that you'll have one to follow along with. Uh, we'd be happy to give you one. You can take notes in it, write your name in it, make it your own Bible, and what a, a gift that will be to you. So please make use of that on your way out. Philippians chapter 1, and we will read verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul writing, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I Rejoice. Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word, for the example of the Apostle Paul here in the letter to the Philippians. And it's our prayer this morning that you would make us into the type of people that you've called us to be, disciples who make disciples. Father, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that you would transform us into the image of Christ, and that you would be glorified in all that we say and think and do in the moments ahead. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Quote, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That question was posed in the 1960s in a prison as Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his now famous letter from Birmingham jail. See, Martin Luther King Jr. had been arrested and imprisoned for his involvement in something known as the Birmingham Campaign, a series of nonviolent protests against racism and segregation in the city. And after having been locked up for his involvement, he came across a piece in the local newspaper written by a group of white ministers entitled A Call for Unity. And in their call for unity, they called Dr. King, among other things, an extremist. And so looking back over the course of human history, Martin Luther King Jr. pens this tremendously written piece in which in a series of rhetorical questions, he points out that there are certain grand ideas that call for attitudes and actions that others might just label as extreme. Was not Paul an extremist 
for the Christian gospel. He goes on to propose that the question really isn't whether or not we will be extremists, but the question is what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for love or extremists for hate? What kind of extremists will we be? Now that's a question that most of us don't typically ask ourselves. We become consumed with our own circumstances and the things that are going on in our lives. And so it's difficult to think on the level of what I want the lasting legacy of my life to be. But perhaps today, on the eve of yet another Martin Luther King Jr. Day, perhaps it's as good of time as any to ask ourselves the question, what kind of extremist will I be? And fortunately for us this morning, as we open to Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18, we find not Martin Luther King Jr. locked up in prison, but we find the Apostle Paul, that old extremist for the Christian gospel, locked up in prison and encouraging his readers to a life of ordinary Christian discipleship. You see, what many would label as extremism for the Christian gospel is really nothing but ordinary Christian discipleship. And see, in this text, this wonderful text, Paul's idea, his teaching is simple. And that is, He wants us to know that even our hard times are opportunities for us to preach good news. We're titling this morning's sermon, Preaching Good News While Doing Hard Time. Now, in this text, it's a wonderful text, as I said, the the structure, what we're supposed to make of this passage is as follows. In verse 12, Paul tells the Philippians that his imprisonment, rather than hindering the gospel, has served to spread the good news about Jesus. And it's done this in two ways. In verse 13, it's done this by enabling him to engage his captors, his jailers, with the gospel. And secondly, in light of his ministry in house arrest or under house arrest, he's encouraged other Christians, verses 14 to 18, to preach Jesus as well. So when we ask the question, how do we preach good news while doing hard time, really, Paul tells us that there are two components to this. First, we must embrace a gospel mentality, and secondly, we must implement a gospel strategy. Gospel mentality and gospel strategy. Now, I want to think first with you about this idea of embracing a gospel mentality. Now, Philippians has to be the strangest and most wonderful missionary support letter you and I will ever read. We can almost imagine Epaphroditus who brings the letter to the Philippian church from Rome where Paul is imprisoned. Epaphroditus walks into the fellowship and all the Christians there in Philippi, they gather around Epaphroditus and they say, what's up with Paul? I mean, we heard he was in prison. We sent money to him, but we don't know what's going on with him. How's the gospel going to move forward with the most powerful preacher in the kingdom imprisoned? And with bated breath, they gather around as the seal of the letter is opened. And as Epaphroditus begins reading, he comes to verse 12 and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance 
the gospel. Here's the wonderful irony of Paul's imprisonment. Though it was meant to silence the preaching of Christ, it actually amplified the preaching of Christ. He says, look, you're not going to believe this, but being here in prison hasn't hindered the gospel in any way. It's helped it. And that's because Paul, in his heart of hearts, has embraced a gospel mentality. What do I mean by that? I want you to notice in verse 12 how quickly Paul pivots from talking about himself to talking about the gospel. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, I'm in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. Though I'm being held back, the gospel's moving forward and progressing. That's a gospel mentality. This is not putting a Christian spin on an otherwise negative scenario. This is not the optimist guide to difficulty. This is someone embracing a mentality on the gospel that goes like this. Here's the key. Bad for me, but good for the gospel is fine by me. Bad for me, good for the gospel, fine by me. Isn't that what Paul says? I want you to know that what has happened to me has really caused to advance the gospel. Now, Paul isn't just sharing this so that the Philippians would know it to be true of him. He's sharing this with the Philippians as his partners in the gospel so that they'll embrace the same mentality that he has. Bad for me, good for the gospel, fine by me. But this is admittedly a really difficult mentality for each and every one of us to embrace because none of us enjoys hardship. But none of us are exempt from hardship. Every one of us in this room, I'm sure of it, if we went around and just shared the things that have happened to us in our lives, would all have our own, this is what has happened to me story. And that's why Ultimately, it's not that important that you and I know or can relate to the difficulties that we've experienced. The one thing that's shared by each and every one of us, no matter what we've experienced in life, is if we're a follower of Jesus, we are called to view our hardship in this way. Bad for me, good for the gospel, fine by me. See, most of us spend all of our time and all of our energy trying to avoid difficulty, trying to avoid affliction, and that's natural. But when our hearts are captivated by Jesus and the good news that is about him, then our hardships are transformed into gospel opportunities. So the question that you and I have to ask here as we think about Paul and this gospel mentality is how do we get there? How do we get from where we are to where Paul is? How do we become the extremist for the Christian gospel that every ordinary disciple is called to be? How do we get to the place where we can say, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders, this is Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, listen to this extremism. He says to them, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that... The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only, if only, I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How do we get there? Well, the answer is found, contained within the message we're meant to preach. The answer is in the gospel. You see, loved ones, you and I will never be ultimately concerned with what Jesus will do through us until we're consumed by what Jesus has done for us. Paul is a man who is so captivated by the gospel that it can't help but flow out of him. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis who once said that praise, praising things, talking about things, is the fulfillment of our enjoyment of them. So that if you and I enjoy and embrace the gospel at that kind of level... It will, it will be unstoppable as it relates to our preaching. Once the gospel has taken root, it will come out. At our old home back in Akron, we bought it probably over a decade ago, and uh, the people who owned the home before us planted myrtle everywhere. And if you don't know what myrtle is, just be thankful that you've never had to deal with that nightmare. It's like this vine-like plant that the previous owners decided they should plant everywhere. And so there was myrtle around the perimeter of the house, there was myrtle on flower beds throughout the yard, myrtle around the garage, myrtle on the fence, myrtle weaving its way up underneath the siding of our home, and we decided that it was time that we had to do something about the myrtle. So we waged what really was this all-out offensive. We sprayed it, we pulled it up from its roots, we smothered it with mulch, we did everything that we possibly could to kill it. And yet 10 years later, as we're cleaning up to move, we're finding branches of myrtle all over the place. Why? It had taken root. It grew unstoppably. And friends, that's what the gospel does in the heart and the life of someone in whom it has taken root. It comes forth unstoppably. It causes us to adopt the mentality that bad for me but good for the gospel is fine by me. Again, listen to the way that Paul frames his gospel mentality as it relates to his imprisonment. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything. I endure trial and affliction and ill health and rejection and abandonment and divorce and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I endure it all so that in and through it, others might come to know the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a gospel mentality that transforms even our hard times into gospel opportunities. Completely changes our outlook on life. 
But see, once you and I have embraced this gospel mentality, we've only done half the work. God's only done half the work in us. Because simply having the desire to tell others about Jesus isn't the same as telling others about Jesus. So we need not only a gospel mentality, we need also a gospel strategy. And that's what Paul discusses here in the balance of our text from verses 13 all the way to verse 18. And he tells us, through his example, to implement a gospel strategy. Now, I've never placed anyone under arrest, nor have I imprisoned anyone. But I'm fairly certain that putting someone in prison aims to do at least two things. The first thing it aims to do is to stop the person in prison from continuing in the behavior in question. And secondly, it's meant to discourage others from engaging in similar behavior. But if that's the purpose of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, his jailers fail miserably. Because not only does he continue to do what he was imprisoned for while he's in prison, but he encourages others around him to engage in the same thing. So he says in verses 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If you've ever wondered how you and I are going to go about the business of connecting people to Jesus... It really is a simple thing. Having started out with a gospel mentality, this priority of seeing the gospel advance, our strategy is twofold. Engaging the lost and encouraging the found. You see that? Engaging the lost and encouraging the found. That's Paul's strategy. It's so simple, it's almost embarrassing to share it. Engaging the lost, encouraging the found. What do I mean by engaging the lost? Well, here's Paul, and he's placed under house arrest. From everyone's perspective, it looks like the gospel is being defeated and choked out. But in verse 13, Paul says that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What that means is I am imprisoned For my allegiance to Jesus as Lord, the Romans have arrested me and put me in prison because I hold that view, but God in his sovereignty has placed me in prison to proclaim that view. I'm imprisoned for the gospel and for the gospel. See, for the Apostle Paul to view anybody Anybody that he came in contact with was to view them as a man or a woman, boy or girl, created in the image of God. As an individual separated from God by their sin and their rebellion. As an individual that Jesus would gladly receive in mercy and grace should they turn from their sin and trust in him. A person who is in need of Jesus. A person that he might bless with the gospel. See, do you, do you see here why the gospel's not defeated by Paul's imprisonment? Here's the key. 
When Paul is put under house arrest, his mission does not change. He has the same commission from the Lord Jesus to proclaim Christ. The only thing that changes is his mission field. All that imprisonment means for Paul is that he has new people to share Jesus with. Sure, he'd rather be out planting churches. Sure, he's longing for his deliverance, verse 19 of chapter 1. But in the meantime, while he's imprisoned, he says it has become known to the entire imperial guard that the reason I'm here is Jesus. Now, there's some controversy about what he means by imperial guard. It has everything to do with where Paul's imprisoned. Is he in Caesarea or Ephesus? And so it's a governor's palace, or is he in Rome? Which it would mean it literally means the entire Roman imperial guard. And I think he's in Rome. The main things are the plain things. But if he is in Rome, that means he would have been constantly guarded, probably chained to someone who would serve four-hour shifts with him. You can almost imagine the shift changes there in the Roman prison. One man goes to another and he says, uh, hey, Maximus, who are you guarding today? The guy says, oh, hey, Atticus, good to see you. I got this guy named Saul or Paul, something to that effect. Well, Maximus says, well, oh, I had him last week. Real interesting guy, that Paul. You know what he told me? Well, first of all, he thanked me for watching him. It was the weirdest thing. Oh, really? Yeah. And then I asked him what he was in for. You know, that's common prison questioning. What are you in for? And the guy went on for hours and hours about this man named Jesus. He said that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. I think that's what he was put in here for, but he won't stop doing it. He told me the guy's God's Messiah. Yeah. He said he died for the sins, not just of the Jews, but for Romans like me and you too. Asked me if I wanted to trust Christ right there on the spot, and you know what I did. And the strangest thing, I've gone all throughout Rome just telling everybody I can get a hold of. Max, you're really in for it today. Paul's mission never changed. His mission field, on the other hand, did. Since moving to Pennsylvania, I, I've changed my phone number so that you'll know that I'm committed, you know, to Lawrence County, the 724 <laughs> area code. And I've noticed, it's been really difficult not to notice, but I've noticed that the number I have was owned previously by another guy, a guy named Gary. And what I've noticed about Gary is that people like to try and sell things to Gary. <laughs> and uh, so every now and then when I answer the phone and I say, hello, this is Mike, which is the way I answer if I don't know the number now, and they find out that I'm not in fact Gary, but I truly am Mike, sometimes I'll get this line, well, Mike, maybe you can help me. And of course, I, I always hang up on them in Christian love, of course. But, but see, Paul, Paul is no bait and switch artist. But even when he has all of his hopes and dreams for the gospel and planting churches, he sits in this prison and he looks at this, he looks across the cell and he sees his garden and he says, hey, you know what, maybe you can help. And friends, not all of us are looking at the guard chained to us. Some of us in our own hard circumstances are looking at the nurses in our hospital room. Others of us are looking across the table at the social worker who's trying to help us as we wait and wait to adopt a child. Others of us are in the same dead-end job with the same co-worker as we've had for a decade. Some of us still are sitting in a class with a group of friends who really aren't friends, 
while the people that we tried to schedule with are in another room. But no matter where we are, that is our mission field. This changes the way that we view all of life. Wherever you and I are at, we're called to be engaging the lost wherever they're found. But see, that's not the only prong here to Paul's mission strategy. It doesn't just involve engaging the lost. It also involves encouraging the found. And so he says in the lengthiest part of our passage that not only has the entire Roman guard heard about Jesus through his ministry in prison, but verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word fearlessly. See, Paul's captors thought that they could squash the gospel by filling Christians in Rome with fear. If you do this, you're next. But notice that it has the exact opposite effect. The Christians in Rome hear of Paul's ministry in the prison, and they say, well, if he can do that in there, then we can do that out here. And they become fearless in telling others the good news about Jesus. Now, friends, we invest so much time and energy, and, and often rightfully so, in evangelism training courses. How do we actually go about the business of telling others about Jesus? But it's been my experience, and I think Paul would attest to this, that evangelism and a passion to tell others about Jesus isn't taught, it's caught. And it's certainly caught here in Rome. So that the brothers begin to proclaim Christ boldly and fearlessly. But there is this thorny issue beginning in verse 15 of motivation. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There are pure and impure motives here among the people that Paul encourages by his example to tell others about Jesus. And what I find so fascinating about this is that Paul calls all of them brothers. Some of the brothers, he says, preach Christ from impure motives. He understands that while he's in prison for the gospel, others are being inspired by his example to tell others about Jesus, but not all of them are doing it from the right motives. He says at the end of verse 15 that some preach Christ from goodwill. And in verse 16, it, he explains them as those who preach Christ out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So if you watch sports at all nowadays, you'll know that athletes bandy about this phrase, next man up, all the time, almost obnoxiously. And the idea is good. Anytime a player goes down with energy, an injury, it's the next man up. No excuses. Keep getting on with the mission. And the people who are proclaiming Jesus by Paul's example out of love have this mentality. Next man, next woman, just as important, up. Paul, you take the home, the, your house arrest, you take your, your prison cell, we'll take the city. We're in this together. Others, he says, have this absolutely horrific motivation of envy and rivalry and selfish 
ambition. Now, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul commands us to do nothing from selfish ambition. It's the worst of motives. And here, we have brothers and sisters doing the best thing they could possibly do, preaching Christ, from the worst of all possible motivations, selfish ambition. Because as they view Paul in prison, they view him as vulnerable. While Paul's out of the game, it's an opportunity for them to pad their stats. Maybe they can get an edge on Paul. Maybe their churches can be a little bit bigger than Paul's. Maybe their name might be praised more than Paul's. They're filled with the competitive spirit. But what I love about Paul is that Paul will have none of it. Paul understands that the advance of the gospel has far more to do with cooperation than competition. There's been this renewed interest lately in Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan because of the Tanya Harding movie that's come out. So we recently watched this documentary that documented the feud. And some of you will be too young to remember, but Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding were both Olympic figure skaters for the United States. They had this fierce competition. Some people that were close to Tanya Harding were found guilty of assaulting Nancy Kerrigan to take her out of Olympic qualifications. But at the end of the day, the two people that we sent to compete to represent the nation in the U.S. Winter Olympic, in the Winter Olympics for us was Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. And at one point, they interviewed Tanya Harding, and in a vile just eruption of all of these motives of envy and self, uh, selfish ambition and, and rivalry, she said, I can't wait to compete against Nancy at the Olympics, and I'm going to whoop her butt. Here are two ladies going to represent the country for the same goal, of bring a gold medal, and instead they're taken, consumed by competition with one another. See, this is the selfish ambition that causes some to proclaim Christ, but Paul will have none of it. And so he says in verse 18, what then? Or as the NIV has it, what does it matter? We might paraphrase, what should I care because they're doing the very thing that I want them to do. They think that they're afflicting me in my imprisonment, but really they're increasing my joy. Why? Because Paul is that old extremist for the Christian gospel that says, by any means necessary, by any motive necessary, all that I long for is that Christ be proclaimed. My loved ones, you know that we will know, I mean really know, whether the gospel has taken this kind of root in the hearts of each and every one of us as an individual and in our congregation as a whole. When we can see lives transformed by the grace of Jesus, our city, which is by anyone's perspective, hopeless, filled with hope in Christ, when we can see marriages healed by the good news about Jesus, when we can see addicts freed from their chains by the mercy of God, and we can watch largely from the sidelines as another church or another ministry does it. Back in the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr. asked us maybe one of the most penetrating questions that we could ever be asked. What kind of extremists will we be? And Paul, 
1,900 years earlier, chained to a Roman guard, gave us the answer. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Will you be an extremist for the Christian gospel? Recognizing fully that what Paul is calling us here today is not to radicalism, but to ordinary Christian discipleship. A discipleship that's willing to preach good news while doing hard times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are so often consumed by our own circumstances, that you, through the Apostle Paul, raise our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his achievements on our behalf on the cross, and that you give us this radical new perspective on all that we endure. What's bad for us is often good for the gospel. So, Father, we pray that that would be fine by us. And we ask that there would be an explosion of gospel activity in our city, in our towns, for the glory of Jesus. We pray that you would use us where you choose and that you'd use others just the same. We pray that Jesus would have the reward that he is due. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, sinners saved by grace. Use us, we pray, as extremists for the gospel, disciples who make disciples. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.